Thank you. Well, it's good to be here again today. And you can turn with me in your Bible to Joshua chapter 3. We're just going to continue right where we left off the last time I was here. And, you know, one of the, the questions that people always ask me after I've had a chance to preach or teach at their church a few times is, why do you always, like, preach from the Old Testament, you know? Like, it's just not, especially for, like, a master seminary guy, like, we just don't do Old Testament, right? And so people will ask, why do you always preach from the Old Testament? And there's really a, a few reasons. One is foundational, is that it's a theological issue, right? So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So not just New Testament Scripture, more recent Scripture, but all Scripture, old and new, is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So if you're only teaching from the New Testament, not from the Old Testament, that's like just eating dessert all the time and never eating the meal before it. It's not healthy. It's not going to make you complete. So that's a a theological or biblical reason of why I always tend to preach from the Old Testament. There's a practical reason too. So typically I'm preaching in like-minded master seminary guy churches, and they always preach from the New Testament. So I know that if I show up and preach from the Old Testament, I probably haven't covered ground that they have, uh, and it gives everybody kind of a different taste. So there's a practical reason. But then there's a third reason too, and this is really what you would call a, a hermeneutical issue or a how do we interpret the Scripture type issue. And so this isn't the primary thing, but what my hope is, is that preaching from the Old Testament will give you guys a better understanding of how to handle the Old Testament. Because honestly, the church has an Old Testament problem. Often we don't know how to deal with the Old Testament. What do we do with it? You know, we'll read it and it's like, great. There's just a list of names that I have no idea how to pronounce. Or it's a, a list of prophecies that sound wild and fantastic and make no sense to me. Or it's just like a story of, of people doing things and doing stuff. And so often we have a hard time because it's not like a command that's in the New Testament. In the New Testament, he'll say, I want you to do this. Don't neglect the gathering. Okay, that's easy to understand. But suddenly you get to the Old Testament and specifically like a passage like we're going to look at today in Joshua 3 and 4, and you read it and at the end you go, okay, that's great, but what am I to do with this? How do I handle this? How do I apply this in my life? How is this going to change my heart and my actions? So how do we handle the Old Testament? So there's different ways, right? You can just take what you read, what you study in the Old Testament, and you can turn it into kind of a a simple moral type lesson. So you would read ours today, and you would say, oh, you know, be strong, be courageous, uh, you, you know, whatever. You come up with some sort of moral lesson for what that scripture verse is is potentially teaching. The other way that you can do it is you take it and you turn it into an allegory. 
And, and you'll say, you know, we saw that last time, right? Oh, Rahab's scarf, it stands for Christ's blood, or, or something along those lines. And today, in our passage, that's one of the favorite things that commentators and theologians like to do with this, is they'll take it and they'll turn it into some sort of an allegory, we'll see. But I don't think that that does justice either. Sometimes we'll just ignore it. Well, this isn't relevant to me. It's a list of names. It's some sort of genealogy. It's a list of, you know, archaic laws for Israel. I don't, it doesn't matter. But then that neglects 2 Timothy that all Scripture is profitable. So even those sections that we don't always understand or that can be difficult, we're told are profitable for us. So what are we to do with it? Let me encourage you, when you're reading Scripture, your primary thing that you should be looking for when you're studying is what is the author's intent? What was the author trying to convey by writing it? I I know that sounds simplistic, but really at its base, that's it. You don't need to come up with fantastic connections and allegories and, and do numbers and all sorts of things like that. Seek out what was the author's intent? And we know with Scripture, there's two authors, right? You have a spiritual author, the Holy Spirit, who's guiding the human author, but they're not working separately. They're both working together with the same intention, with the same purpose, with the same goal and end in mind. So you don't have to find what's the Holy Spirit's intention and what's the human intention. They're going to be the same. So what is the author's intent? Some passages make it really easy. It'll say in the passage, here's why I wrote this. Here's why I did this. Fortunately for us, Joshua 3 and 4 is one of those passages. It's one of those passages where God will lay out, here's why I'm doing this. Here's what I want you to learn from this event. So that makes it easy for us. For then, if we go and take Joshua 3 and 4 and we turn it into something else, and we neglect what God said the passage was for, then we have a problem. So let's jump into it, and we're going to make it through Joshua 3 and 4. We'll go through two chapters, and one, we're going to see Israel following after the ark, and then second, we'll see Israel setting up a monument, setting up a memorial. And we'll see what was God's intention in doing this, in in these actions, and then having them recorded, and then what does it do for us? How does it change our lives? So let's jump into Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. 
Yahweh said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, Gigashites, Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of Yahweh, Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come, as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. Those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over into Jordan. So if you had to find a common theme for Joshua 3, I think we may all agree that it's probably got something to do with the Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, the Ark of the Covenant finds this prominent place. It's the the point of discussion. Here's what you're going to do. Here's the Ark. You're going to follow this thing. Yeah, the Ark is going to be guiding you. Uh, It's this constant discussion about the Ark of the Covenant, and which then causes us to ask, well, okay, the Ark of the Covenant, what is it? What's it doing? What's it representing? What's the point here? So we understand that the Ark of the Covenant was this place where the presence of God resided with Israel. So when Israel came down and said, I'm going to be your God at Mount Sinai, gives them the law, and he says, I'm going to come reside with you. The place, the point where he resided was in the Ark of the Covenant, which was then stored in the Holy of Holies when they would set up their tabernacle. Eventually, it would find its place in the temple. But for now, as they're traveling, they have the priest carrying this Ark of the Covenant. And it stood as this physical manifestation, this physical representation of Yahweh's presence with Israel. We read in verse 4, it says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. And we say, well, why is this ark have to keep a distance between the people and the ark? And the, the quick common response is going to be, well, because the ark is holy, 
and we know that, you know, you don't want to tread on holy ground, and you don't want to touch the ark, you might die, you know, we know the story of the other guy. Uh, so they wanted to keep the distance because the ark is holy. That's a simple answer, but it's not the answer that the Bible gives us. It's not the answer for why God told them to keep a distance. He says in verse 4, do not come near it. Why? In order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. So he says to them, understand, keep a distance, and, and think of it this way. You've been in a crowd. If you go to a, a football game, and you're in this crowd of people, and you look around, you can kind of see those that are around you. You may see some heads and stuff. Now imagine if there was an somebody carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and you're in this crowd of people, and the Ark is near you, and all these people are around you, you can't see the Ark. You don't know where you're going. You know, and the Ark's supposed to be leading you. You're just going to follow whoever's right next to you. You're not following the Ark. Now, you place some distance, 2,000 cubits, and you get some distance between the Ark. So now the Ark is out there, and the crowd, the, the mass of people of Israel are here, and they can all look out, and they can see the ark. And they're going to follow after it. And God says, I want you to follow because you have no idea where you're going. You've never been here before. You don't know what you're doing. I'm the one that has a plan. And so you're going to be following after me. So he sets up the ark in this central location where everybody can see it and everybody knows where it's going. And they can see that ark and the priests as they go down to the river and they can see the waters separate. It's not like, oh, we're in drought season, the river's kind of dried up, and we're going to cross over. It is this miracle where the waters stop, and he says he piles them up like a wall, like this heap, and the people can see all of this because they're further back, and they can see God enacting a miracle for them to cross over into the Holy Land. And what we have to remember is that the ark really stood for a few things for them. One, it symbolizes God's holiness. You know, within this chest, within this ark, were the stone tablets of the law, the law that was passed down that said, here is how I expect you to morally live as my chosen nation. It was this reminder to them that God had passed down that law, had commanded them to follow that law, he had that moral understanding that they would pursue that law. And this was this constant reminder to them that we're worshiping a holy God. We're not worshiping an absentee God. We're not worshiping any other gods. But it is this one Yahweh who's holy. It also symbolized his sovereign power. Here, we see the ark going into the river and separating the waters. And it's really like a, a redo of the Red Sea. And, and he'll say this later on, that here's my purpose, that I did this just like I did at the Red Sea so that people will know. And, and so here it is, the ark standing in as this symbol of the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the rule of God. And for them not to mistake he wants them to see that miracle. And so he says, stand back and watch the miracle that I'm going to do for you. The ark also symbolized God's justice. They're going to experience this shortly after this. 
They're going to go and they're going to conquer Jericho. It's going to be great. But they're going to end up sinning. One of the families is going to sin, and God's justice then is going to be brought down upon them. And then they're going to purge that evil from among the nation, and they're going to experience God's mercy after that. So the ark stands as this symbol of God's justice. Here's my moral law. If you break my law, then there's going to be justice that follows. It's going to require payment. But I'm a merciful God. And in fact, the covering for the ark was called the mercy seat. Once a, one day uh, out of the year, they would come on the Day of Atonement, and the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and the sins of the people were confessed over this Ark of the Covenant. And so, the Ark was this symbol of the mercy that they would receive, the justice that God demanded, the morality or holiness that God demanded of His people, but also His power and His sovereignty. And so, He tells them, I want you to follow the Ark through the river. And then he tells them, on top of that, I'm going to ask you to set up a memorial. And so we get into Joshua 4. Let me read this. Joshua 4 says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, Take 12 men from among the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, they took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as Yahweh told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. So let's stop here for a moment because verse 9 can be confusing. So verse 9 almost seems like they're setting up a second memorial. We have to go back and we see God commands Joshua, says Yahweh says to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 12 stones from a, the, in the middle of the river, bring those out over into the promised land, and you're going to set those 12 stones up in the promised land as this memorial to what took place here. And then we get to verse 9, and the English translation says, and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. And so everybody reads that, and then they jump on it and want to turn this 
into some sort of an allegory about baptism. And so they say, see, look, there's two memorials. There's one they set up on the riverbanks, and there's one that they set up in the middle of the river. And the one in the middle of the river is not a foreshadowing of the 12 tribes or Israel, but it's a foreshadowing of the 12 apostles, and then it's going to be covered with the water of the Jordan, and it's just like baptism. That's great, but Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, Scripture says, if we go back to Joshua 1, what was the primary instruction that Joshua is, or that Yahweh tells Joshua? He says to him, do not, Joshua 1, 7, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. So I'm going to give you instructions, and here's what I want you to do, Joshua. I want you to follow my instructions. I want you to follow them like a straight path. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. You don't need to make stuff up, Joshua. I've got a plan. All you have to do is follow my plan. So we get back to chapter 4. The plan that Yahweh lays out is not to set up two memorials, one on the river banks and one in the middle of the river. No, his plan is you're going to set up this one memorial and you're going to take the rocks for that memorial from among the river, from inside the river. So what do we do with verse 9? Verse 9 in Hebrew can read one of two ways. One, it can read the way that it's translated in English, which is almost a hyper-literal translation of it. But Hebrew is kind of poetical, and it requires context. And verses 1 through 8 give us the context for this. So when you get there, and it says, Joshua set up the 12 stones in the, in the midst of the Jordan. In Hebrew, you can actually read that as Joshua set up the 12 stones that came from in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And there they are to this day. So that makes more sense with the instructions that God gave them. Set up one memorial on the banks, 12 rocks representing the 12 tribes. This is what I've commanded. If Joshua's already, hasn't even crossed over into the promised land, if he's already ad-libbing and making extra memorials in the middle of the river, we've got a problem. God's not even going to go to Jericho at that point. He's going to stop and deal with, Joshua, why are you setting up extra memorials? Well, I figured if one was good, two is better, right, God? No, I didn't ask for that. I said, set up one memorial. So when I get to verse 9, I read it as Joshua set up 12 stones that came from in the midst of the Jordan, not as a second memorial. And it doesn't have anything to do with baptism. What's the memorial for? He's going to tell us. He's been telling us. He continues on. It says, for the priest bearing the ark, this is verse 10, for the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that Yahweh commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Then the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of Yahweh and the priest passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before Yahweh for battle to the plains of Jericho. 
On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And Yahweh said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of Yahweh is mighty and that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. So why does God set up this memorial? We're kind of given a few reasons, few purposes for why he sets up this memorial. First, the generation entering the land to conquer it needed a memorial, something to remind them of what took place when they crossed over into the promised land. Because the road ahead is not just going to be simple and easy. Despite how the first battle is going to go with Jericho, not all the battles are going to go as great as Jericho does. There would be times where they would, would be discouraged. And this memorial would stand as a sign to them that, look, your God hasn't forgotten you. you know, and this memorial does double duty because it reminds them of crossing over the Jordan, which then also makes them think back to crossing over the Red Sea, which then also makes them think back to being brought out of slavery in Egypt, which makes them think back then to the Abrahamic covenant where God promised that I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring, Abram. And so this is a chain that chases all the way back. And so when we read it, we do the same thing. We shouldn't read this and try and bring it forward and turn it into some sort of an allegory or illustration about baptism or something along those lines, make the same journey that Israel did. You look at this, you say, okay, he brought them over the Jordan, just like he brought them over the Red Sea. You go back and you see him bringing them over the Red Sea, and you see him bringing them out of Egypt, and you see him making the covenant to Abram, and you see him fulfilling that covenant to Abram throughout history that he preserves Israel all the way to this day. There's no reason that Israel as a nation, Israel as a people, should even be around anymore. Yet God, for thousands of years, preserves them as a people and as a nation. And so we see the promise-keeping nature, the covenant-keeping nature of God. And we find encouragement through that, just like Israel would have found encouragement. So we don't need to do anything special other than listen to what God said. Why did he do this? 
and understand it in that way. Second, he says that the generations that were going to come would need this memorial, not just for themselves, not just as a reminder of the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God, but also as a memorial to the children. Because children easily forget the faith and they easily forget the instructions of their parents. And so he says here, four, six through seven, what do these stones mean? He says that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in a time to come, what do those stones mean mean to you? And, And this is not hard to understand. I mean, this is the same reason that we have the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson and MLK and all of the memorials in D.C., they're there so that we go and remember what we've been through, what we've experienced. We go so that we can bring our children with us to the Vietnam War Memorial and explain to them, here's the history of what's happened. And they can ask those questions. And this is why God established this memorial, so that you might remember Israel, but also to provide a talking point for your children. So when you're walking by Gilgal with your children on your way to the grocery store, and they go, Dad, what's the deal with the big pile of rocks over here? You can say, sit down, let me explain it to you. You see the Jordan over here? Let me tell you what we experienced. And then go back further, and you take them back to the Red Sea, and you remind them what he did in the Red Sea, and what he did with the Passover, and how all of this is a fulfillment of the covenant that God had made to Abram. And so it becomes a teaching point for the families. And then third, it stands as a memorial to the rest of the world. The peoples of earth needed that memorial as a testimony to the existence and nature of Yahweh. If we go to the very last verse in the chapter, verse 24, and it says, actually I'll step back to verse 23, for Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as Yahweh your God did at the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over. And why? And here's the explanation, and this is not me interpret. I mean, this is straight from God, right? So, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty and that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. So he says, one, it's a reminder to you, don't forget what we did here, because it's so easy to forget the good times and just focus on bad times. It's a reminder to your children, so you don't neglect to teach them what God has done for you. And finally, it stands as a memorial to the world, just like the Red Sea. Why did he do the Red Sea? Why didn't they just go some other direction? He wanted to bring them through the Red Sea essentially to mark his name in history and to mark his name to the world. That here I am, I am Yahweh, God over heaven and earth of this nation Israel that I've brought out of slavery in Egypt. I've conquered the Egyptian army and I've brought my nation through the middle of a sea and protected them through this entire thing. And it worked. 
and we know it worked because the last time I was here, we did Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab. And what did Rahab say to the spies? We've heard about you, and we've heard about your God, Yahweh. I mean, she knows Israel's God by name. So God's actions of bringing them out of Egypt, conquering the army, bringing them through the Red Sea, announced his name to every nation on this earth. That even the most powerful nation, Egypt, in the world at this time, has no power over this God, Yahweh, who's God of Israel, who's God over the heaven and earth. And so Rahab gets it, right? And she says, ah, we've heard about you, and we know about Yahweh, and you know what? I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to follow Yahweh. Let me be a part of this. And so same thing here. I want you to set up this memorial to remind the world about what I did for you. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. He says, the stones were to tell the other nations about this God and that he is different, that he really exists, that he is a living God, and that he is a God with real power who is imminent in the world. God was announcing his presence in the promised land, and this is a reminder of the work that he did. So then what are we to do with this passage? Because we're not Israel. I don't even know where the pile of rocks is right now. I mean, it may still be there. I've never been there. I'm not walking my kids past it. So what do we do with this passage? You know, we can turn it in again into a nice little moral lesson about courage. You know, don't be afraid. Follow God. Have courage. Have strength. We can turn it into an allegory about baptism. We can turn Israel into the church. Israel has been replaced by the church. It's not faithful to Scripture, though. We can choose to ignore it and say, well, that's nice. It's a nice little historical story about how Israel entered into the promised land. We can look at it as, it's just a myth. It's just a legend. But none of those views do justice to the passage. In this story, God sets down a signpost. He sets down a marker of who he is. That set down these 12 rocks, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel that I made a covenant to, that I promised to protect, that I promised to turn into a great nation. And here's the first steps that we're taking into this. I'm getting ready to fulfill a portion of this by giving you part of the land. I've already created a bunch of you, and I'm going to fulfill the rest of these things. So we see the nature of God, that he's sovereign, that he's merciful, that he's just, that he's holy through the Ark of the Covenant and its presence within Israel, shows us that nature. And then we see God enacting his power. And we remember that we're not worshiping a different God. We're not worshiping some new God or a God that's changed his mind, but it's still the same Yahweh, it's still the same God of Israel that is working out his plan to fulfill a promise that he made to this shepherd, Abram, that I'm going to give you this land, that I'm going to make you a great nation with lots of offspring, and I'm going to bring blessing to this world. And so here we see him fulfilling those promises. And we get to us now within the church age, and we know he's made a new covenant that's 
fulfilled the previous covenant, that covenant to Moses and Israel, with this new covenant. And in this new covenant, he comes and he says, I've provided mercy for you. I've brought a helper for you. No longer am I going to reside in an Ark of the Covenant, in a Holy of Holies, separated from my people, only accessible through the priest, only approachable one day out of the year. Instead, now I'm going to reside with my people. Now I'm going to come and I'm going to turn their hearts to stone and turn their hearts into flesh. And I'm going to bring them the mercy and salvation that they need because they've sinned against me. Because they violated not just my law that I laid out to Israel, the law that I laid out in the New Testament, but the law that I laid out to the foundation of this world. They've violated those laws. And so I provide mercy and a path for redemption to them through my son, who had been promised back in that Abrahamic covenant, and who stands here as a shadow looking ahead of that promised redemption that Christ would bring. So when we look at this, we look at the same way Israel did. Here's God taking care of his people, reminding them of what he's done for them, reminding them of the covenant that he's made for them. And so we gather in churches now. We participate in baptism and communion, not because baptism magically does something for you, but here it is as this sign of your commitment of placing your faith in Christ. And likewise, communion Christ says, I want you to do this so that you'll remember me. I want you to practice communion so that you don't forget the work that I did for you. So that you don't misunderstand and think that you're going to earn your own salvation or that some other God can provide your salvation. I want you to remember the sacrifice that my son made to fulfill the covenant that I made in Jeremiah, this new covenant, to fulfill the covenant I made to Abram, and to fulfill the promise in Genesis 3 that I'm going to wipe out sin eventually. Let me close this in prayer.